Reading Room, a literary podcast devoted to the works of Appendix A. Here we open the library doors of the Sanctum Socorro to you. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum Reading Room. Whether you are new to the literary world of Appendix N, a diehard fan of the genre, or just tuning in to see how certain titles might tie into a particular set of role-playing games and low-flying planes, (laughs) we invite you to join us as we dive into the history and influence of Appendix N. We'd like to open our library to you and inspire readers to explore these new worlds. I am Keeper Jen, and with me is the illustrious Keeper Bob. Evening, everybody. Um, Bob, do you want to remind people about uh, this this platform that they're watching us on tonight? Well, uh, I don't think I need to remind them that they're watching us on Twitch. Uh, the features, the features. They're on Twitch. Oh, well, you know, um, there are they're channel not bugs, points. They're features. <laughs> yes, there are there are channel points. So later on in the uh, towards the end of the show, when we have our poll on what we should read next, uh, feel free to boost your reach with uh, some channel points and up your votes. Also, it's worth mentioning that we have a couple giveaways coming up later on in the hour as well. So. Uh, one other fun thing that Bob forgot is that you can also spend channel points throughout the duration of our show and ask for a random joke or trivia fact because Bob is full of those. And I'm, I'm full of trivia facts. Someone asked for jokes. It's on you. Yeah. Okay. So you can ask for a random bit of trivia or you can <laughs> ask for it to actually be a bit of trivia pertaining to our subject at hand. And of course, tonight we are continuing our exploration of the progenitors of Appendix N with a look at The Black Diamonds by Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah. The thrilling and fast-paced story of 17th century Baghdad deals with two mysterious black diamonds and the conflict they engender between a family and the powerful thief who seeks to reclaim them. Kidnapping, piracy, arson, and even a possibly supernatural lake of fire are all included in this fantastical tale inspired by Smith's love of 1001 Arabian Nights. And boy, you can, you can feel the influence. You really can. (laughs) Um, Clark Ashton Smith, of course, born 1893, died in 1961 was the most precocious of of <laughs> the uh, the Lovecraft circle and of the big three of weird tales uh, and he this, definitely was in that Lovecraft circle oh oh most most certainly yes yeah he, uh, he and uh, he and Lovecraft actually uh, wrote each other into their stories under <laughs> under uh, vaguely vaguely disguising pseudonyms like Clark Ashton yeah um Nice. But yeah, so Clark Ashton Smith, he went through like primary school and I guess what we would call like junior high, middle school. And rather than going to high school, he just, um, with his parents' permission, he self-educated himself. He read the 
the Encyclopedia Britannica twice, which mm-hmm. which uh, which I've done once, and it was a really long summer, and I was um, anyway. Um, and he also read an unabridged dictionary, word for word, studying not just the dictionary but the etymology of the language. So that he really developed this this love of words and philosophy. He taught himself French and Spanish just so that he could translate poetry from those languages. Um, yeah, and we actually see that a bit later. I'll, I'll mention that uh, one of our uh, quote-unquote protagonists has a very similar background. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But talking about the lexicon and everything, I mean, the uh, the verbiage really drives me over back to the Vancean verbiage and, and makes me a little bit nervous to do things like the Zothique series. Well, it, well, especially with, th- with this particular book. I mean, he started writing fiction when he was 11. Um, he sold his first story when he was 17. And this is a story, <laughs> this is a story that he wrote when he was like, what, 13 or 14, right? Yeah. So he had just started his, his uh, self-education. So unlike, unlike Vance's florid um, linguistic ledger domain of, of words that, that sound familiar, but aren't, but are sort of cobbled together from other languages, bits and pieces, um, Clark Ashton Smith, especially in this book, is definitely using real language, uh, which which uh, right. It, it's nice, actually right? approachable. Yes, it is approachable, and um, and it's not terribly sluggish, which I was a little worried about, um, especially after going to s- back to some of my own uh, short fiction that I'd written in school when I was fourteen. Uh, this was considerably better than that, so. Oh Major my! Props. Oh my! Yes, I. Hey, I you think, haven't read that fiction. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, I remember what my fiction was like, and and honestly, much as much as I love Howard and I love Lovecraft and and the others of that circle, I think that it is really safe to say that at his best, when at his best, Clark Ashton Smith was the best writer out of all of them. Um, when, Still when so amazed he, he didn't get he that really mention. Well, in you know, it, his, his stuff had, had mostly gone out of print. By the time Gary started reading things, he was being reprinted in Arkham House publications. Mm-hmm. And those were small print runs and they would come and go. They weren't something that you would normally see in your local bookstore, right? You wouldn't see it on a spinner rack. Oh. We but, we certainly don't. Yeah, well, no, we we find him very rarely. Um, but yeah, he sold his first stories when he was seventeen right, to Overland Monthly, and Overland Monthly had, had published up by like Ambrose Bierce and Jack London. I mean, this is this is the kind of of uh, literary heights that he was assumed to already be hitting at the age of seventeen, and then he moved over to poetry and that was that was his big thing for the longest time at the age of 19 he published his first collection of poetry uh which was the star treader and other poems right and and he was he was hailed as the keats of the pacific you know again everybody had had understood that uh, clark ashton smith was an amazing amazing writer 
I did see that uh, some of his, uh, what is heralded as his best poetry, was actually produced during a period of poor health. And that was around when he was 20 or so, because his literary production was limited during that time. Yeah. Um, He he had a a long period of health issues, including having like tuberculosis. Um, Additionally, he was agoraphobic. He suffered from depression right. and nervous disorders. I mean, he was he he was a, a bundle of of stuff, right? Well, I mean, hey, some of us are too. Yeah, uh, he did grow up in a small cabin. I wonder if that has anything to do with the agoraphobia. Well, I don't know. A small cabin, you'd step outside, and there's just the world. So it's it's kind of hard right. to tell. Right. But um, but yeah, it it was you know he he wrote a little fiction as a kid. He moved on to poetry, and then when the Great Depression began, his parents' health began began to fail. So he did what everyone did. He started writing fiction so he could pump it through the pulps and uh, right. make money. And in the span of like six years, he published around 100 stories. And you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, through his self-directed course of literature... Uh, it included things like Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels. Uh, you get some Hans Christian Andersen, Madame Dalnoy, uh, of course, Arabian Nights, and Edgar Allan Poe. So it's a, a nice broad swath there. And you can almost see influences from every single one of those titles and, and authors in The Black Diamonds. Down to the nautical segments. Well, and and his love of Poe, I think, really kind of influenced his horror was darker than than many of his contemporaries. Uh, where whereas uh, and darker is in like not not is in like cosmic horror dark, but as in like you are going to die a horrible death, dark. And, oh, uh, uh, merit. Yeah, more. Yeah, a little bit more like merit. Um, but I mean, he was by, you know, so it was a hundred stories between 29 and 35 by 1937, he had pretty much stopped writing fiction completely. And he went back to poetry and sculpture. Uh, there's, there's talk that at one point he might've even become the, uh, the poet laureate of the United States had, uh, had things gone a little bit differently. I mean, he was, he was that good. Um, Lovecraft said that in sheer demonic strangeness and fert- fertility of conception, Clark Ashton Smith is perhaps unexcelled. And that is, that is, you know, high, high praise from a, from a man who was afraid to fish. <laughs> and uh, and Bradbury said that Smith filled my mind with incredible worlds, impossibly beautiful cities, and still more fantastic creatures. Uh, you know, Bradbury, Lovecraft, he he really was. He had he had the respect and admiration of his peers because he was just that good. I mean, there's I mean, volumes upon volumes have been written about Clark Ashton Smith. He's yeah, he's he's that good. He's that interesting, and his his background and upbringing is that uh, that extraordinary to read about. And I would almost be interested in that, but I got sidetracked with these totally nerdy observations from this volume here. Um, 
the surviving text that was found with this story, which is his longest at nearly 90,000 words, yep. is 246 handwritten pages or 122 leaves, two sided, of fool's cap paper written in purple ink. He had to have purple ink, didn't he? Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think that was the second paragraph of the introduction. Uh, I was like, I'm in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this explains a little bit. Uh, they are unsure if this draft that was found is the first manuscript or what's considered a fair copy, but there were so few pencil corrections. They weren't sure if it just hadn't fully been edited yet. Um, and can, can I just talk a minute about the quotation mark usage? Um, the editor of this book, uh, S.T. Joshi, I S.T. Yoshi. He is the Yoshi, preeminent okay. scholar of Lovecraft, <clears throat> Clark Nation Smith, and some others. Right. I, I suck at pronunciations. I'm sorry. Uh, starts with a J, so I should have known. Um, he mentions that there were so many quotation marks used throughout the entire manuscript that he had to standardize everything. But at one point you get a story being told by somebody wherein there is dialogue. So you get the double quotes and then the single quotes, but then within that is additional dialogue because somebody's telling something that somebody else had told somebody else. And at the end of one paragraph, you get a glorious set of five closing quotation marks. And I was just over the moon. And I, I may have been way too geeking out over that. He came um, running into the bedroom to tell me about the five closing quotation marks. She originally, originally she thought it was incorrectly used, but she was still excited. Then she discovered it was correctly used. And oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> This is this is Bob's life with an editor. What can I say? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as long as I don't have to use five quotation marks, it's all good. I would I would advise against it, much like semicolons. Um, I did want to bring up this uh, last paragraph of the introduction where Yoshi asks the indulgence of readers and critics alike. As the product of a fertile young imagination, as an experiment, an extended narrative, as the single longest work of fiction that Smith ever wrote, in all these ways and more, it should earn our admiration, its implausible incidents, its stilted dialogue, and its wooden character portrayals can easily be forgiven. Well, and that's I'm, and that's fair, right? I mean, think about I'm this. Thinking if if this is what's called an adolescent attempt, uh, it's not one of I the mean, greatest the, authors of his age. Yes. Uh, well, this is, no, no, this I, was, it, this it's was not him. bad, though. No, no, it's uh, not. There, this is this is him was, beginning. But again, he was one of the greatest authors of his age. Hence, his even his early stuff is not bad right there was another that he wrote in his quote-unquote juvenile years called the sword of zagan mm -hmm. um, and it was also unpublished until you know the the past two centuries I, two decades so, yeah sheesh yeah 
<laughs> I stumbled on that one. Sorry. Uh, it was unpublished until 2004 and is published under the same mark and by Yoshi again uh, as editor. So I thought that was yeah, really well, interesting. Doing a little research on Yoshi himself, I was like, okay, he's one of the authorities on HPL and, yeah. and beers. And okay, not not necessarily always the nicest guy, but he is uh, when it when it comes to his field of study, he is pretty much unmatched. Uh, but we know but, a few of those. But yeah, I mean, uh, if you think about this, he wrote he wrote this when he was fourteen, so he was just still fresh into his self-educational journey mm-hmm. and he wasn't done he was he was maybe maybe six months to a year into homeschooling himself which you know kind of makes me rethink my uh, my uh, critiques of tarzan all of a sudden because <laughs> but uh, but tarzan wasn't clark ashen smith uh so i don't know uh how many of our uh, our viewers and listeners have uh, had a chance to read the Black Diamonds? But I would be curious if if you feel that the juvenile nature of the author comes through in the text of the story or not. Um, certainly, it doesn't have the polish of his later work. But sitting down, would you really think this is the work of a child? Um, personally, I can say that. We've read works written by some of our uh, lesser known friends who like to dabble in writing. And uh, yikes, Um, this would be, you know, four grades higher at least. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to put this exactly uh diplomatically <laughs> clark ashton smith as as a child was sort of sort of like um a child mozart as a child right i mean the precociousness and and ability far outstripped his years uh, well let's talk about that dialogue for a minute well, let's talk let's talk about the book in general i mean last last month we did a story with a spear made of white diamond so now we're going to talk about a book with a pair of black diamonds right uh <laughs> But the, uh, the One dialogue, <laughs> right. I mean, the, the dialogue was, I see why, why Yoshi, uh, refers to it as, as stilted. Um, I didn't necessarily think it was stilted so much as emotionally detached. Did, Everybody was, uh, say something about it being unbelievable. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? It, it, because there was such a lack of emotional connection that people would say things and be like, Oh, Oh, they're going to screw you over. They're going to rob you. They are so lying to you because no one would ever say that, but they're being honest. It was, it was very strange. So I, the entire book I was waiting for, you know, every, every conversation I was waiting for another shoe to drop. I was waiting for someone to be taken advantage of, but everyone was always honest, even in their dishonesty, they were honest, and that 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 really okay. kind of hurt my brain. Um, and they weren't uh, terribly convoluted about it. They, well, they were more no, brazen every, about it. No, everyone everyone had their had their cards out of the table. Uh, you know, something else. I mean, until the end, was, at least. Yeah, everyone was so unfailingly polite. Right? They could tr- be trying to kill each other one moment, and they would be having a conversation the next. 
And one of Darn the things near civilized. Yeah. One of the things that struck me was in, in modern literature, it's very unusual to see, uh, people taken prisoner and often they're offered their, their parole, their, their limited freedom based on their oath. They're not going to escape. Uh, that was a real thing. Uh, you see it a lot in, in older literature, especially, you know, military stories. And, and so it, it made sense in context, but the villain was so fiendish that the fact that he was so strict to honoring his word kind of hurt my brain it was at odds yeah i mean uh, i mean i there were some places where i thought the dialogue was deliberately obtuse especially in arguments uh there were so many times where you must tell me the story of this but first we must eat or i you don't need to hear that story you need to hear this other story and well what's the What's the answer to this? Well, and and see, to um, me, here's this other person's story. You know, <laughs> to, to me, that sort of showed the the love of a thousand one Arabian Nights, right? I'm going to tell okay. you the story, and I'm going to tell you another story, and I'm going to tell you another story, and so that that sort of of flowed and and worked for me. Um, although I have to say, my theme for the beginning of this book is arson, arson, and more arson. <laughs> Um, because, oh my God, that's, that's what you did. Uh, We have, we've gone to his house. We have grabbed him and, and we've taken him back to our house. And now his people have come to our house and they've taken him back and they burned our house down. So we will go to his house and take him back and burn like, wow. And then his people come over and set our house on fire while we're in it. Just flush us out. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's in some of these details that Clark Ashton Smith's youth um, sort of, sort of comes to notice, right? There's, while it draws from these old tales with like the, the number of coincidental lost relatives and long lost friends who pop up in weird places. Um, and that's, that's generally not considered a hallmark of solid storytelling today, but things like that have a really solid history in, in, you know, classic fairy tales and legends and myth. So that's, yeah. that's what he was reading. That's where he was coming from. Yeah. And, and, and it, so it, it makes sense. It really did read like an adventure. Oh, uh, most certainly. I, in fact, for our, our Twitch audience, I'd be curious to hear if they want to uh, add any commentary about, Oh, where they would set, this book if they were to run some of these encounters it really was just like encounter after encounter after encounter that you would well i mean in in i could just open this book and pull out dice that that, but (laughs) but okay the npcs would get confusing but but the thing is it is it's it's done in a very classic literary style um and and yeah it it is thing it is certainly, you know, moments strung together, which is again very telling of of some of the inspirations of this. I mean, and makes me think of all of the other people who wrote after him and used this as inspiration. I mean, well, they they did this use this be- as inspiration though because they did this was never published, right? I mean, this oh, shoot, they were true. his contemporaries were all long dead before they, he was dead and in, in the ground like forty three years. Yeah. Um, I think my only anything follows the same style. It really reads like Fawford and gray mouse over me. You can totally set it there. Maybe. 
Okay. A a good portion of the encounters. I mean, I I will say I have one complaint about, about the book And, and really it's, it's one, it's, it's fairly minor, but the black diamonds are sort of a meaningless MacGuffin. I mean, it, one is one is such a perfect fake that it's almost indistinguishable from the real diamond, and it takes you know like a, a, a jeweler using a special glass to be able to determine which one's real, and and so we need to find out which the real one is because the thief wants to sell the real one, and they've got both. And like, well, first of all, if you've got them both and they're that good, you can just sell them both, and we can be done. And and at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, um. I don't know which is which, but you should just take one. There is for all of the title, for all of, for all of the back and forth about these diamonds, nobody really cares about the diamonds that much, but nobody, nobody seems to really care about their wealth that much either. And that makes, (laughs) that's fair, (laughs) but in a way that makes for a really interesting story dynamic, because I mean, so, so our hero Mustafa has, has his house burnt down arson arson and more arson and he's got all of these vaults beneath his home filled with all of his gold like ten thousand pieces of gold so his house is raised to the ground it is a smoking crater nobody nobody comes and steals anything it's all just left there nobody nobody Even the to touch vaults it. are still there yeah well and and remember you know then he goes away and by the time he comes back the entire house has been rebuilt exactly as it was all the way down to any secrets in the house but but nobody's really worried about that. It's the, while the villain wants these black diamonds for no real solidly given reason, other than he wants revenge on Mustafa and getting Mustafa into his power is far more important to him. So it's it, it strips away, it strips outside. away greed and it really, it really takes, it takes the, the hatred that, that he has for Mustafa to a very burning core. It goes back to you know, their fathers and, and they had hated one another. And, and it was it, all it, over a woman who was like the only woman to be named in the book, except for a servant. And it, she was, and she was French. Yes. She was, she was the only like, and, non-eastern person really in the story well no there was a greek sailor we're gonna dive into this the the entire overarching story is about how this wrong was done to my father by your father and so you must pay for your sins and but that's not even revealed until midway through the book it's just he hates my father and he keeps uh pounding on the fact that my mother died in childbirth and so we're introduced to this French woman. We're given her name, and I'm thinking, okay, here, here we go. Perfect opportunity for this to be explained out. And no, no, she dies by the end of that whole encounter, and there's no possibility of that woman being the the guy's mom. But, uh, but I, also the way, but the way she dies. I mean, again, you know this. this this book is this, the story's over 100 years old. It was published 18 years ago. There he will was be the only deceitful character. No, his his mother was also a deceitful character, and so were both of their parent, both of their fathers. Okay. Um, yes, because remember, she she her death. So so she died. That wasn't by, his mother? The French was, woman. It, yes, yes, it was the woman they fought over. It was it was the mother. No. No, she she died on the ship, right? Um, 
Only oh, minutes, right. the, only five right. minutes had transpired. That's right. The fathers had fallen out over her, and then there was the mother. My, my apologies. Right. That, that's where I was like, okay, you've got this perfect opportunity, and you blew it. <laughs> but the French the, woman the French woman was definitely a, a dishonest character. As, yes, that, as well. and that's why I said she was, she was deceitful, and uh, the reader knew it, but nobody else did. And that was like the only quote unquote deceitful character there. Everybody else was very out in the open to everybody about their dishonesty, right? Like you mentioned. About the, not when we're talking about the backstory. When we're talking about the backstory, uh, the backstory. With, with the fathers, you know, the, 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 the father that is like, oh, well, here's, here's a bottle of wine for you to enjoy. And, you know, in the box, I've hidden, I've hidden an Egyptian asp that is going well, to it, kill you in your sleep. There was that, plenty of, of. That was part of the, the strife over the woman. Right. So, so in the, in the backstory, there was certainly dishonesty, but once, once we get to modern day, you know, everyone's right. pretty honest about, about hating each other and what they're up to, not always their motives in, until the end. And, but, but that, that backstory seemed almost like an afterthought in the, the way it was placed into this manuscript. And it, it just kind of didn't go anywhere else. And the overall gist that I got from it was the feeling of, well, maybe it's for the best that that bothersome French lady died. And I, that's really oh. the way it, it came across in all the story. And I, I would say it's I, it's for the best the bothersome French lady died. It's too bad the two men weren't better friends to begin with. Uh, okay, and, that's and, and fair. And fell over that, right? That's fair. Um, especially since they, they both eventually moved on from, from piracy. But but so, yeah, we, we have this this background that we come to later. And it, the way the story plays out, there are, there are so many moments where this person is dead. No, they're not. We have killed these people. No, they're not. It almost plays <laughs> out like an old Republic serial, right? Like you'd go to the movies and, and you know, this week, you know, this week Mustafa has been, has fallen down a dark well and he's going to drown. There's no way that he is going to survive. And next week we see him washing out onto a street and being taken in by a stranger. Uh, so okay. it really does have an episodic feel to it, which, and but, yeah. but not, but not so, and not in such a way that like uh, Stephen King's first dark tower book, the drawing of the three, uh, or no, just the dark tower, the drawing of the three. Second. Anyway, uh, Stephen King's first dark tower book was a, a selection of short stories that all string together, but they felt like short stories that strung together. This really feels like one story told episodically. There's, there, there's a difference that yeah. might be yeah. subtle, but, but, but there's a difference. Um, and that, that kind of goes along with, man, there are some seriously long walking or commute times in Baghdad. It always takes an hour to walk somewhere. It's I, hot. That, that just, yeah. I lived in the desert. I had to walk everywhere. Yeah. Too. Uh, uh, that, that was one of, one of my my observations there, uh, I, but I, it, I would, I would also some... say that that with the episodic thing though, the other thing about that is throughout the story, um, someone will tell their story. Right, this is what happened to me, and so quite often, the story makes mention of someone recounting their portion of the story to get another person, and and it kind of keeps going on. It could get recursive, but if you look at it in the fashion of this is being done almost like a serial, that's sort of like 
last time on, and now we're going into the new episode. It, it really sort of hits those notes, and I, I find it fascinating. And I, I don't know if that was in any way an inspiration of, of his writing for this, but it really has that feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it it almost does feel both episodic uh, in the storytelling and in the uh, how should I say uh, <clears throat> the the way that things were actually written. Like he had to walk away from it and come back to it. Uh, one of the critiques that that I definitely had was that. Um, the wrong names were occasionally used in the writing. You know, this wasn't really edited for content, but there were some uh, <clears throat> confu confusing moments where I'm like, wait, no, that, that was Ahmed. No, 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 that was Ahmed. Wait, wait what? Which character is talking here? Which ones are having the dialogue? And it, it's almost like he had had to, leave for the night and come back to it and wasn't fully there. Yeah. <sighs> now in over in the chatbot, King Hydra has asked me hit with a random fact. So I'm going to hit him with a random fact um, inspired by this book uh, in the story. We're introduced to a, a Greek sailor who has, he has taken on an Arabic name and, and he is, he is sailing amongst the Turkish crew and, uh, there is there was a practice back in the day of of Christian sailors doing what they called turning Turk, uh, converting to Islam, and uh, often taking on Arabic names, and it was a way to avoid slavery when you were captured. Because um, in our history, right, in the United States, um, slavers would bring people over, we would treat them horribly, we would force them to uh, convert to Christianity, and we would continue to hold them as slaves and treat them horribly. And Muslims would release any fellow Muslims from bondage because it was not right to keep a, a fellow Muslim as a slave. And uh, during the, the U.S. Barbary Pirate War, this was actually commented on by some of the the Barbary pirates that while while they were raiding our ships they were morally superior because they didn't keep people of their religion as slaves so there is your, your random fact uh, there someone turns turk in this book but it's it's not quite it's it's not histororically accurate but i think that at the age of 14 we can Excuse forgive clark that, ashton yeah. <laughs> smith for not having having read up on that particular bit of pirate lore like uh, like i have pounded into my brain oh god and and he hadn't read a whole lot of nautical stuff in the first place um all of the distances on water were referred to as miles and i gritted my teeth every time uh, they also didn't have navigational instruments on board. They couldn't tell where the heck they were. They were going to wait until they got to uh, whatever land they were hitting. And then they were going to pull out the charts and try to figure out where they were. Nautical miles are, are a thing. Now, granted, well, granted you know, the, the Turks wouldn't necessarily have used that terminology, but, yeah. but we are, we are, we are reading an English translation, right? Yeah. But they would just be referred to as miles. Yeah. Um, yeah, we are we are pre kilometer here. Uh, <laughs> well, that that's fair. We are definitely pre uh, pre metric. But uh, um, go ahead. I had a couple of 
notes on on that as well like the the men using rowing as exercise and just some of sailors some of didn't the, swim i know i know <laughs> they, well they did sink no the the land i mean the primary characters they're like oh well i oh take yes my boat I out s- on the lake and i row for exercise and i'm like i <laughs> that, that, I have but questions. That's, that's also a thing. That, that, I, that really was it? Is a, yes, okay. that, that really was a thing. Um, I don't know if it was a thing in you know like 16th century Baghdad, uh, but it was certainly a thing in Clark Ashton Smith's lifetime. Um, okay. But uh, speaking of the naivete, uh, Mustafa goes to the Pasha to ask for a private revenge. Yeah. And and maybe for to borrow, you know, two to three warships. Oh, and can you please keep this private as well? And not only does the Pasha say, sure, I can't give you the ships, but you have enough of your own because you're in the, the trading business. So you have plenty of ships. Uh, but then he offers to make Mustafa his successor. And says he will convince the Sultan because he has no heirs. It's, it's Mustafa's, uh, it's Mustafa's Alibaba moment, right? Where, yeah. where everything becomes his. Hi, um, I just met you. Would you like my, my stuff? Well, well no, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't that he had just met him because he was known to the Pasha. Right. He was, Mustafa okay. was a very, very prominent merchant. Everybody knew who he was to the point where when he was believed dead, other people were coming in to take over his business and keep it running because he had like a dozen ships that were coming in over, over several years. Um, so, but, but it was, it was There's that so moment, much going right? on in this book. <laughs> it's, it's that moment where, Hey, you know, now everything is yours. Um, I did. The one thing I really found interesting was uh, the whole the whole fire worshippers subplot. Yeah, where, yeah, that, where that was very the villain culty. and his coterie are are fire worshippers, and fire worshippers are under sentence of death. And and at first, I I I was kind of at a loss, other than okay, well, we've got this lake of fire, and so they're fire worshippers. But doing a little research in Islam, fire worshippers were slash are um, they're they're a real thing. Uh, they're they're sometimes mentioned in the context of polytheists, Jews, and fire worshippers. But fire worshippers didn't literally worship fire like they did in this story. I think it's a case of Clark Ashton Smith, you know, having heard that. And maybe Britannica not having a very large section on uh, Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism um, <laughs> because Zoroastrians are are referred to as fire worshippers because while they don't worship fire, they do bow to it as a, as a representation. But they really kind of had their problem too. I mean, they're they're one of the world's oldest monotheistic religions and under the the caliphate in in persia they were taxed they were they were forced into labor and there's maybe at at this point in in our in our time now in in 2022 there's probably a hundred thousand of them worldwide so while they were never like hunted scourged purged 
um, in this period, like they are in the book, it was interesting to see where he could take that brief mention that really nobody in the States is going to know anything about and grow this mythology with this, this mysterious lake of fire and the benefactor who turned into this pillar of blue flame. And and I feel like I've seen this B movie. Well, and the, and the thing is, the in, throughout the entire book, everything is about natural laws, right? They they talk about magicians and how magicians make things appear by having a black background of people dressed in black that'll run over and pull things up because you can't see yeah, them. Yeah, they were they were giving quote unquote giving away magician secrets. And... Well, yeah, they they really weren't uh, big big secrets. But they they also just refer to magic as black art. Yes. Well, and because that's interesting. Not art. That's just art. Because it's one, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Um, they're not, they're not, you know, like Clark Ash and Smith. They're not processing, you know, it's not, you know, poetry, sculpture, and fiction. It's just magic. uh, Besides the word bastinadoed, I think the only real uh, anachronism for me was Kappa Pi. Uh, he mentioned he used the term a few times. It's hyphenated cap hyphen a hyphen pi p i e, uh, like referring to these guards who were cap a pie in armor. And looking it up, it, it just means from head to toe. Yeah, but, but it's such an archaic term for this usage that every time I came across that, I was like, eh, I'm. I'm that's the fourth time i'm writing it down (laughs) yeah i mean well beyond beyond just the linguistic shift from the time that he wrote this to the Mm -hmm. time that that we have read it we're also seeing the effects of the linguistic shift from the sources he was reading and drawing upon and and so the story comes off as the language is a mixture of very archaic and I would say contemporarily familiar language. And don't forget term paper. There are so many things that feel like uh, high school papers that we had to write. Uh, Always referring to that person versus using a pronoun. Yeah. Always, always adding to the word count. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which which is interesting, right? I mean, this wasn't a story that was that was uh, that was ever you know, published, bought and uh, sold, yeah. And, and he was certainly young, and selling ninety thousand words is probably not something that he was looking at. Although, as episodic as the story feels, I can't help but wonder if he had ever thought about it. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we get kind of the the buffer language that uh, that extends things a little bit. Um, like, let us look over his shoulder and see what is written. That author communication, uh, that the first person point of view directly to the reader. I mean, it. That, you don't even have to say fourth wall. It, it's the author talking to the reader. And I found that almost unique in that I haven't read anything like it since a term paper. Well, right, because as I referenced in the last paragraph, yeah, it's 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 sort of a weird it's a weird take on first person omniscient, 
right? Because mm-hmm. it's not just being told, the entire story is not being told in that in that first person omniscient. It's just that periodically the omniscient first person will remind you that he is there telling you the story. And and that gives it it gives it a very strange feel, almost I would say almost dreamlike in that you 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 get subsumed and then there's something kind of whispering in your ear hey now we're going to watch this and oh, you're turning and it's you're like turning those, your focus it, it's like the plates in the silent films meanwhile over here uh, except and, i would say more us, personable but let yes. us read what what is written on this the sheet that he is yeah yeah that i although it, far more legible i would it say broke, than, than, it broke the fourth wall well yeah, and it was written in purple ink. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the symbolism throughout of using serpents as the weapons, I suppose, or or the uh, place where danger is found. There, there are so many instances throughout here that. In in a couple of the stories that are told, you know, there there's the story of the cobra, which really felt to me like a, a retelling of the Dutchman. Uh, made me wonder if it was foreshadowing for a minute. Um, spoiler alert, not really. No, because the um, story the story is <laughs> is very determinedly not supernatural, except maybe the magical lake of fire. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, other ships that that we see are are the serpent, which. The serpent and the eagle both uh, play a very large part in this. The story of Neptune and the Ten Sailors was regaled, and the ship in that is called the Asp. Yeah, yeah. And the weapon used, uh, you know, by, oh, shoot, uh, Abdullah's father, or Constantine, uh, had... He had tried to use the snake as a weapon, and in our our final skirmish or encounter, if you will, uh, the snake actually gets the last blow in. And yeah, just a lot of it, that. It's more than than symbolism to me. It, it's almost like, dude, okay, I get it. <laughs> well, and. There, there's something. There was a, there was a, a storybook when I was a child. I think it was called something like "The King and His Friends," and it was a, you know, it was, it was a simple children's, beautiful art, simple story, hardcover storybook. And this sort of reminds me of that in that in in the story, you know, the king is the the king is on a quest, and he would go to one place, and he would need something, and then he would meet someone that fit that need, and they would join him, and he would continue, and he would have another need, and so he built this group up, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what happens here, right, all the way to the point where, all right, so we've uh, we're slaves on a ship who have been condemned to death. The captain doesn't want to kill us. But He's befriended Abdullah, us now. But Abdullah's men want to kill us, and they're they're members. They're they're fire worshippers. They're cultists. They're going to get the ship destroyed, and so. But we can't do anything unless we give them a fair trial, because everyone in this story is painfully honest, even in their dishonesty. And what do you know? There is someone aboard the ship who used to be a, a Cadiz, which is a, a type of judge, mm-hmm. um, who had retired but was 
always welcome to come back and play such a role. So all of a sudden, this common sailor is like, why, yes, I am a high-ranking legal official, and we can have this trial aboard ship. And he was a little bit clownish, and all I could think of was Judge Harry from Night Court. <laughs> it just, it, just all these, all these wonderful little moments. I mean, if you are, if you are not a fan of coincidence in storytelling, then this, this, the black diamonds will drive you up a wall, but if you can get past that and just embrace it for all of the, the weird little twists and turns, it's not a mystery. You don't need to try and figure out what's going to happen. You're not sitting there trying to figure out who the villain is because the villain introduces himself at the very beginning of the book and, Indeed. Uh, and, 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 and is very well known. He, he has, he, he has dinner with, with our protagonist, Mustafa. Um, because dinner is a civilized thing. You don't even tell your stories till after dinner. Yes. It, it, Food is sacred. It is, it is all very civilized um, to the point where when they, they find themselves in this old castle on a, on a, on a desolate Island. And that is actually the, the center of the fire worshippers faith and they're captured and they are given their parole. They swear they will not try to escape. And that's when they're told, Hey, this is where you're at. This is what we're going to do. And since you have promised not to leave, um, we're going to kill you in five days time. And there's nothing you can do about it because you've promised not to leave. And, and everybody is like, Oh, darn, we've been tricked. I guess we can't do that until the captain finds a way to force them to rebind him and, and put them and lock them into a room so that they can, they then say our oath is, is no longer valid. We can try to escape. It is. And then they devise this really great plan and then it's not used because they end up not needing to. Well, it's, it's but then they use it later. Part, yeah. <laughs> well, and and some of the some of the plans they come they're up with are a little bit like, hinky there for they're me. They're like, I have a cutting plan. I'm like, all right, what's a? You're gonna do what? Okay, so let me get this straight. There's a chute that goes down through the floor that shoots you out over this lake of fire that may or may not be magical, but you can slow yourself down just enough that you can grab hold off. of a small yeah. ledge on the on the outside of this and hang there because there is a bar because this is where the villain has put the black diamonds and you're going to turn your clothes into ropes so that you have a shooting down as you're going out you're going to grab hold of the rope and hang there till they think you're dead when they run down to see what's happened you're going to climb back up like yeah there's no way that anything could go wrong with this plan uh i just it, it it's wait, it's wait till we get them started on the multiple vaults under personal houses. Oh. <laughs> but 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 it, in in some ways in some ways it was charming. And it was it was charming in the fact that the characters themselves are no more uh worldly or sophisticated than our author is. And and our author yeah. is 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 very young and he's and what he is drawing upon as his sources has those sort of fantastic and outlandish elements. And so there, there is a real charm to this and the language, the, the writing itself is beautiful. It's just that the characters themselves feel wooden and, and they do a lot of swooning. The men swoon a lot. They, they faint. Horrible things happen. There's, and, and there are points that, I was actually pretty impressed to see that oh, they, they hugged each other 
because they were taught as children not to show weakness and all of that, but they throw that aside and they hug each other now. And okay. That's an interesting little loop there. Uh, yeah, the, but, the, yeah, they swoon a lot. But, but <laughs> yeah, but and then that Too takes much. us that takes us back to this entire lake of fire, right? I mean, everything <laughs> really is explainable does. under under natural law, and then you we get to this lake of fire, and the the first we see of this this flame of the of the uh, the fire worshippers is just kind of this plume coming up through the stone, and by sticking your your injured your limbs into this fire coming from this fire pit of burning petroleum below green it, flame it heals uh, was but, it gre- yeah it was green flame but but it, it completely heals it does no injury it heals but this is but according to the story all of this is is part of natural law it's not magic uh and, and so then we've got this this image beneath right this vast lake of petroleum that is all ablaze with like this small island towards the center with this with this uh, not obelisk but this graven image of of the man who who founded the fire worshippers by going down and lighting lighting all this ablaze and turning to fire himself and so the statue or or idol was of the man holding the sword and all of it was a flame and and the green flame and the lake of fire itself felt very Mount Doom. But uh, well, but it's it's very pre-Mount Doom. Uh, yeah, what right. I would think <laughs> the image that sprang to my mind, and I I don't remember the exact name of the location, um, and I don't remember if it's if it's oh, the volcano. Turkey. No, if it's in in Turkey or Iraq or but it's in it's in that general region of the Middle East. There was a. Uh, some drilling that set a large pocket of natural oh. gas ablaze yeah. and it will, it will you know, not burn out in several lifetimes. And it's this huge crater of just fire. It's like this gateway to hell that can be seen for you know, miles and miles at night, like lighting up the horizon. And that's the sort of image I had was this big okay. bowl of just fire crackling up. Um, I mean, this really is, it's a, it's a fun book. It's not, uh, dis- despite some of the, uh, the language, I don't think it's a, a difficult read. Um, it's, I think Let, it, it's a fairly quick read. Let's just not forget that the quote unquote uncle and cousins keep getting left for dead. And Everybody keeps getting left for dead and they keep coming back. People that we have killed keep coming back. The uncle and cousins ended up not to be family after all. Yeah. They were just using Mustafa. But then, but they were honest in their dishonesty and <laughs> yes, they came yes. clean. That's exactly it. That's and, exactly it. And, and he rewarded them for that. It's there really is. There's, yeah. there's sort of this fresh faced charm to this book because none of the characters are anywhere near as jaded as, as modern readers are. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons I was like, Oh, Oh, what are you, what are you doing? You were okay. Let me get this straight. They have come to kill you at your newly rebuilt house. And so you're going to lock yourself in your vault so they can smash their way through. And you're just going to go from vault to vault to vault. Yes. But they're in, they're in sequential. And, I'm and, thinking, and then and he's not going with a retractable rope ladder to escape. But he's <laughs> not going to have guys with shovels and chest taking your tens of thousands of pieces of gold on the way. He is no, just, just going to kill yeah. you. Well, and, he, and bring he's blowing up the down. doors too. Yeah, yeah he's just yeah. going to bring the house down. They're not. Mm-hmm. I like, but but 
but there's all this money and, and you're leading them through. And when the guy said, well, here's, here's my plan. You should take us to your vault and we should, you should lock. I was like, Oh, Oh, this is a trick. He wants to get in your vault. And he's going to like shiv you and open the door and they're going to rob you. Nope. Not at all. Uh, totally didn't see that coming. Uh, they were all very uh, nice. It was. Uh, yeah, it was, it was bizarre. So so nothing, nothing went the way that I expected it to, but Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the story. It was, the storytelling is fairly simple, but it's, it's a fun story. It is, uh, dare I say a ripping yarn uh, (laughs) and it is, it is definitely worth picking up. There's, there's no ebook for it. There's one edition of it in print, but it's available Mm -hmm. on Amazon. If you haven't read the black diamonds, do yourself a favor and and read very young Clark Ashton Smith. It is a, it's a good place to start rather than jumping into his later books where you're going to need a thesaurus and an advanced English degree. And Bob, if it makes you feel better, one of the tales told in this book, just to make things go for full circle for you, was the true history of the Black Diamonds. And it was set place in the city of Amber. Yeah. Yeah, that that was an interesting little all hmm. these all these little side stories. There's so much storytelling yeah. to it. Um I really I really recommend it. Uh, uh, yes, I'm I'm with, yeah. I'm with you Gator. Um if if I hadn't all right, there, here's, there, here's there are days, man. Bob, Bob Bob made the jump to bifocals. And let me tell you, bifocals made it a lot easier to read this book. Uh, than, I just didn't I hadn't. put my contacts in that day. It was okay. Although I didn't I didn't think the type was tiny, tiny, right? It, it's not like Bible tiny. Um it is it is maybe smaller than a than most modern paperbacks, but and, and it's not like we were reading Persian poetry, a German lexicon, and a book on Arabian philosophy all on the same day, like Mustafa did when he was bored. Yeah, there, you know, there, Mustafa, there's, yeah. there's my throwback is, to is, the one is where Mustafa really a throw, you know, a, 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 a an alternate version of Clark Ashton Smith? Probably he could only because, read the writings in Turkish, yeah, <laughs> so because, he know, looked at the German lexicon and and got dizzy with all of the characters. You know, but but it's it's one of those things. Mustafa is probably Clark Ashton Smith, just like Al Hazred was originally Lovecraft's name when he was writing himself into Arabian Night stories. So Mustafa yeah. really struck me as one of the uh, oh tragic heroes because he was he was an anti not an anti hero, but he wasn't really a protagonist. He was well, just I mean, kind of whipped along for the ride and. There were a lot of characters in uh, some of Merritt's books that made me feel there was a kinship between. I would say he certainly wasn't tragic. He was the only person that was guaranteed to get through alive, and a lot of people didn't. And boy, when they when they did finally die, because that's the thing, really. If you mm-hmm. were if you just really died, you died <laughs> real quick. It was like, oh, someone fired a shot, and he jumped in front of me and took the bullet, and is dead. Great. Okay. Well, I okay. like that character, but all right. Well, that's that's fine. I guess we're done with it now. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, it, it's it's all it's all very serial style. So and, yeah, and, uh, and and with that, maybe it's time to announce our pair of uh, giveaways. Other books. 
Yes. Um, we're going to do two giveaways again this month. We're doing one for our live audience, and the other is for all of our viewers and listeners. So that's right. It is time to enter the Sanctum Sacrum's very own Rise Closet of Mystery. Okay. <laughs> there we go. The prize closet of mystery. So uh, uh, uh. <clears throat> try that again. No, no, no. We had the audio. <laughs> so beyond weird oh, tales no. and strange tales, uh, there were a number of other well-known pulps published uh, that published the weird fantasy and horror fiction of Clark Ashton Smith. Um, so what we're going to do, the fastest person to correctly guess our multiple choice question in the chat window is going to win themselves a classic ace double. G574, which is The Karchi Rain by Avram Davidson and uh, Raconin's World by Ursula K. Le Guin. Now, don't give any answers until we've given all four options in you know, for, mm. for the poll. So here we are. Um, Do you want me to cut and paste them into the poll? Or in, no. Uh, I'm sorry, no, into the thing? No. Oh, no. okay. So choice number one. Again, this is... Uh, which which of these is a pulp that published the work of Clark Ashton Smith? Was it A, Uncanny Tales, B, Two-Fisted Detective Tales, C, Stirring Science Stories, or D, Black Mask? So, what do we have? Hmm. Uh, okay, so the history pro professor here has guessed answer number two, which is two fist uh, detective. To be tales. fair, they they guessed that while you were in the middle of. Well, no one else guessed them. yet. So I would just say uh, no. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, Clark Ashton Smith did appear in Amazing Detective Tales, but uh. did not did not appear in Two Fist Detective Tales. But Femboy reads our friend Foxy guesses stirring science stories, which is the correct answer. Uh, a guess or not, it was not Uncanny Tales. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith appeared in Strange, Weird, and Amazing Detective Tales, but not Uncanny Tales. And he did not appear in Black Mask. He instead appeared Black in Cat. Black Cat. So I knew uh, that one. So Foxy, go ahead one. and uh, drop us an email or a, or a Facebook message with your mailing address, and we will get you that ace double sent out. Yeah. And uh, Jen, why don't you do our fantasy giveaway? Uh, well, with all the attention paid to the classics of Appendix N, there are a number of authors with works that fly under the radar. One such author is Neil Hancock and his Circle of Light series, which we've covered before. Uh, check out Sanctum Secorum episode number 39. Uh, and we'll get that in there for you with a link. It consists of four volumes. The series has the scope of the Lord of the Rings with a central cast of a dwarf, a bear, and an otter. You need to read them to believe them, and one lucky winner will get a chance to do just that. Enter the contest. Just drop us an email at thehub at sanctum.media. And one lucky winner will be chosen at random to receive Grey Fox Grimwald, Faragon Faringay, Calyx Stay, and Squaring the Circle, books one through four. The entire series. And I am, I am very fond of that series myself. So, so, so that contest oof. will run through until our, our next episode. So 
folks in the chat and and folks listening to uh, to us via podcast all may enter just drop us an email and uh, from that then um so we should probably read off these these choices before Elena makes the poll go live um we have a question for our twitch audience and you know what's coming folks which author and novel should we read for next month? So you want me to read the choices? Jeff? Sure. Yeah. You, I'm not reading the first one. <laughs> All right. So the first one is by Hugo Gernsback, who uh, is the person that Hugo names are, are named for. And it is the book Ralph one to foresee for one another, which is Ralph. The numbers one, two, four C for one plus one to foresee for one another. The second is she, a history of adventure by H Ryder Haggard. It is a book that has never been out of print for 145 years. Uh, H Ryder Haggard also known for King Solomon's mines and a number of other things. Our third choice Mm -hmm. is the house on the borderland, a book directly praised by Lovecraft written by William Hope Hodgson. And finally, Horrible Imaginings, a collection of short horror stories by Fritz Leiber. And all of the stories are by Leiber. It's not a compilation of other authors in there with it. Correct. Ooh, so if you pop up to the chat, click on that little down arrow and expand your menu. And ooh. And remember, you can... You can weight your answers with channel points. I've I've learned this. You I've can weight them. Yes. Um, ooh, Bob, have you voted yet? Uh, no, I haven't voted yet. I'm <laughs> I'm watching House on the Borderland. Horrible imaginings bounce back and forth, and I really love. Mm. Now I voted. Uh, well, technically, I suppose I shouldn't <laughs> vote because you know the idea is the audience gets to vote. But you know that's true. Well, I've got to read it. Technically, so. Elena is part of our audience too, <laughs> and we know what happens when she starts voting. <laughs> yes, we read we read stories written in 1666 in Jamesian England. Uh, <laughs> that was. Uh, well, it, it was well, a book. It is, it, uh, is a, it is a tight <laughs> split between House of the Borderland and Horrible Imaginings. I will, uh, I'll come back to that when we finally have a decision. Um, right. And honestly, it's an excuse for me to pick up another printing or another version of either or any of these books. Uh, even if we already have them on the shelf, you know, we kind of like to have our own copies while we read. So, And so while we wait and pray for someone to break the tie so we don't have to read them both, because I will, but Jen will beat my head with a hammer if she mm-hmm. has to, um, I should point out that our next show should be on Tuesday, September 20th. Yep. I was just uh, where we will be covering um, either House of the Borderland or Horrible Imaginings. Uh, mm. Mr. Professor is willing to sell his <laughs> vote. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a 50-50 right now. And scant seconds to go. Oh, oh, horrible imaginings takes the lead. Ooh. Oh, it's taking a big lead. It is now nine to set. Well, big lead. It's, it's leading by two, but uh, <laughs> I think that is going to be an insurmountable lead. And we will indeed be delving into the horror fiction of Fritz Leiber. And, and I'm excited because oh. I've only ever read uh, his sci-fi and Lankmar series. 
Oh, his yeah, he he so definitely I, wrote some wrote some horror and and moved in horror circles as well. So and, that and I know a, it's a huge jump back into the the kind of current Appendix N as opposed to their contemporaries or their uh, their inspirations. Well, but we're reading but, we're reading not we're reading library that's not cited on Appendix N. We're reading yeah, an Appendix we're, N author, but it is not we're uh, an Appendix N collection. Yes, we are. Yes. We're Appendix N adjacent. We are Fritz Library horror curious. Um, <laughs> thank you, History Prof. Uh, I've posted the link there for the quickest place I can think of to get a copy of that. Uh, because it might actually take the next month of scouring all of our, our used bookstore haunts. And I probably still will never find it because I don't think we have it in our library yet. I, so, I again, really, I we, really we, thought we did. Um, maybe, but somebody if moved out of our appendix on, on to, me. Yes, so. it is all in one place now. Imagine, <laughs> no, it's so weird. Uh, imagine all of the appendix <laughs> end books being on one very full bookshelf um, yeah. or set of, of shelves. Yes. Uh, it got moved G- to the game room as opposed to our library. That's, and if, if that's we what's don't have me. it, oh no, oh no. Whoa. Don't throw <laughs> me into that bookstore, Briar Fox. I'm going to have to buy more Fritz Library. Oh, look, it's our favorite evil corporation click and um, yes sky 2 i'm i'm with you conjure wife is a great story mm. and uh yeah some of some of, of liber's non-fantasy is is really well i mean all this stuff is really solid but i think i think you will find it uh, quite enjoyable quite enjoyable. the last few uh trips i've taken with him my i should say that literally uh it's been in the form of short stories or anthologies with other authors doing short sci-fi writings and that reminds me that i should probably throw harlan ellison on our list for next time Ooh, i would i would uh, love to to uh, read <laughs> and discuss i have no mouth but i'm a scream and likewise i would love to get over to the house on the borderland so it might maybe keep that one on the list so so yeah we'll get there we'll get there there is lots of books and uh, lots of reading ahead so, so much reading <laughs> so with that maybe we should uh, call it a night so that we can uh, start reading order our book and start reading uh, by friday <laughs> yeah <laughs> um real quick i wanted to give a shout out uh tune in again on this twitch channel tomorrow night at I believe uh, eight PM Eastern for Joey's Pizza Party. It's always oh, a fun hey, time. Yeah. Always a good time. Oh, there's lot. There is lots of great programming on on the Goodman Games channel, and and the YouTube page. Is, and there is also great great programming by some of those same people that is that is off of of the channel. Like uh, you know, Foxy runs games on the Goodman channel, but also mm-hmm. has some boy reads where he where uh where foxy has been reading all sorts of stuff so yeah have a good time have a good night and stay inspired Sanctum Sequorum Reading Room has
has been a production of Sanctum Media.